Well, hello. We're going to do the book of Revelation, chapter 7. And as soon as we got started here in the hotel room, the big fan turned on. So I hope that's not too distracting. This is where we're going to do the Revelation series from now on. We're parking it here on the Our Safe Harbor website, uh, YouTube site. The website's supposed to go live here in just a few days. And so we'll advertise that and make it known across the different social platforms. My voice is a little bit weak. I'm working in Oklahoma this week with the church and it's a little worn out. So am I, but Revelation 7, we left last week um, finishing up Revelation 6, but doing a bit of a preview of Revelation 7. We read the first three verses and then we also read verses nine through 12. I'm gonna do that again to get us started. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Then skipping to verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It is, in, in my opinion and in the opinion of many, one of the most dramatic chapters in all of the book of Revelation. Some even say it is the most dramatic. I think it may have a tie or two for the top, but I want us to absorb the imagery here. And also not just the imagery, but the hope that is found in chapter seven. To do that, we will have to take a look at some of the verses we skipped. But Revelation seven, one through three, you have this picture of the four cardinal points, north, south, east, and west, and there are angels stationed there. And God says, hold back the wind. Do not let the wind blow upon the earth to, to harm the sea or the trees, or the people. This is, this is very Semitic, poetic language. And so far, so good. We see angels at the corners of the earth. By the way, once again, do not read our way of using language onto theirs and then claim they're ignorant. I've seen people use this, both flat earthers, and yes, there are flat earthers, who claim this proves that the Bible says the earth is flat. No, it doesn't. Uh, the Bible also talks about the sunrise, but it doesn't mean that the sun rotates around the earth. It's a way that we talk. We still talk that way. We'll talk about the four corners of the earth because we think of north, south, east, and west. It also sometimes is used by atheists to say, well, you see, they thought it was flat back then. You know, uh, I was told as a boy that Columbus is the one that proved that the world was round, but that's not at all true. 
well before Jesus was born, there were Greek philosophers who were also mathematicians who studied the way that ships disappeared as they sailed off on the sea. They disappeared from the bottom and they were able to calculate that the world was round and they even calculated a uh, circumference of the planet and they were off, but by not as much as you might think. So these people were not ignorant people. They were not stupid people. They just use language the way that we use language. So all that said, angels are around there and angels are stopping the wind from blowing and harming the people, the nations, the sea or the trees, the great and mighty ones. And uh, there are so many people who want to interpret the wind and say, this is what the wind means. We have a problem. Early Semitic languages don't give us a consistent interpretation of what that means. We have really no context to grab it. That said, here's the good news. We don't have to worry about the wind because there's nowhere in the book of Revelation that the angels step aside and the wind blows. Nowhere. These angels stay in place and stop whatever it is that could have been unleashed upon the world. I think that's a good reminder, first of all, of humility, that we don't always know everything. And we might not be able to figure out everything, even in a book in the Bible. And I think humility is good for us. Second, if you think you've got an insight because God visited you in a dream, he didn't, and you don't, you're not that special, let's move on to the lessons we can get from the book of Revelation, shall we? God has some work to do before the wind blows. In verse 4, he heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Here's where we have to talk about some, some people who are sincere and honest, and but they're wrong. Um, I don't preach against different churches and different faiths, so just don't do it. As long as you are sincerely trying to follow Jesus Christ, why should I preach against you? But I feel here that I need to point out that Jehovah's Witnesses um, have long said that there are two classes of saved people. Kingdom class, 144,000, will be in heaven, capped at that. And then on earth, on a renewed earth, is everybody else that follows their religion. The Jehovah's Witnesses were started by a, a gentleman who was a self-taught individual. He taught himself Greek and he didn't teach himself very well. And I'm sorry, but that's, that's it. He also did not know Jewish history. He read a couple of books and he made some incredible wild leaps of fantasy. And so for example, in Acts 15, when the elders of the church tell the disputing churches that had come to gather at Jerusalem to not, uh, not, not to eat the blood of the sacrifices and the sacrifice meat in the altar, they take that to mean, well, you can't have blood transfusions. And people have died and they call them martyrs. They even send out people to the hospital to make sure you martyr. Most states have in effect laws to protect the children of the Jehovah's Witnesses because a lot of them have died. And because of this, the laws, a lot of the Jehovah's Witnesses won't take their children to the hospital when it comes to this. And it's just, it's so sad because that's not what the verse means. And we could do so many others. For some reason, he feels that the cross really means an X 
And so Jesus was crucified on an X and he thinks that he thought he's been long dead, Charles Russell, that that means something big and important. And it really doesn't. And it's not an X. Um, and here he comes to this and he claims that 144,000 is a literal capping of how many people are going to be in, in the kingdom class. Well, to believe this, you have to really do some huge leaps, but you also have to ignore the rest of the chapter because the chapter here specifically speaks in twelves for a reason. And it names the tribes of Israel for a reason. In fact, the next several verses, which we're not going to read because uh, frankly, it doesn't go well if I'm looking down reading all of this and you can look at it too. It just says from the tribe of this 12,000 from the tribe of this 12,000. And there are some now Charles Russell, as far as I know, did not make a big deal of this, but there are some uh, writers, some theologians that make such a big deal over the list of the tribes because they'll say, Ooh, this is a very different list than the original list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it is, but that's not, um, it's not really a big deal. And we'll talk about why in a little bit, just hang on there. First of all, you need to know Semitic languages use numbers in a way that is all their own. They don't use numbers the way that Western people do. African people have, a, and again, Africa is a big continent. So there are several different ways of using numbers according to language groups and cultural groups in Africa. Asia, massive continent. It also has several different ways of using numbers. The Semitic people, <clears throat> sorry, the people of the Middle East, let's say, don't use numbers particularly to indicate the, the multiples of, of, a, of a particular one, you know, one, two, three, four, five, their numbers are used to make concepts known. For example, one, one means unity <clears throat> or the ability to stand alone, that firmly rooted. Two is a doubling of strength, a doubling of courage, it's energy, it's power. If you see three, holy perfection, deity, trinity, if you will, Four is the physical world, and that one you can almost see because north, south, east, and west. Seven is perfection. It's the perfect balance. It's the divine number. If you multiply seven, it means to emphasize the perfection. That's important because the next symbolic number that they use, by the way, none of this is secret. This is very well known to anybody who studies these languages. It's very, very common. The next number would be 10. 10 means completeness. And when you multiply 10, you're emphasizing completeness. For example, in Psalm 50 and verse 10, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. There are more hills than that. And there are a lot more cattle on hills than a thousand worldwide. So does he only own the ones on a thousand? Well, no, we don't take these numbers literally because that's not how they're used in Semitic languages or Semitic cultures. It, cattle on a thousand hills is a hundred times 10. It means he owns all of them everywhere. And so if you do 70 times seven, for example, Jesus uses, 
um, there are some older manuscripts that say seven times seven, doesn't matter. It means you forgive your brother in that context. Always, there's no end. You always forgive, it's perfect, it is complete. And any multiple of it just means, well, even more complete than you thought in the first place. There's 12, gonna talk about 12. It's in this chapter quite a bit. 12 means religion, uh, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, you get the idea. There's also six, we're gonna run across six. And six is imperfection. Seven's perfection, six is imperfection. imperfection. Remember that the word sin comes from a sporting term, meaning to miss the mark. Uh, if you were to shoot an arrow at a target and the arrow missed, that would be a sin. So sin in scripture is missing the mark. There's a behavioral standard and you failed to reach it. We all have, that's why we need a savior. None of us are going to get to heaven on our own perfection. That's kind of important as well later on in this chapter, so hang in there. So six is evil. What about half of seven, three and a half? That actually shows up a couple times in Revelation. It shows up in Daniel, it shows up elsewhere, and people get all wrapped around the axle on this. But three and a half just means incomplete. Seven's perfection, three and a half, it's incomplete. It's out of balance. It's despair, it's confusion. Now, again, this is not a secret. If you've taken Hebrew 101 and 102 and you've graduated beyond, even modern Hebrew uses some of these numbers and concepts or numbers to actually represent concepts. In fact, uh, there's, there are many Hebrew communities. And I say Hebrew because uh, they're not all in Israel and they're not all you know, Orthodox Jews or Reformed Jews, but they speak Hebrew. Uh, but among all of these, there are groups that still don't say turn on the light switch. They say light the candle. The language is ancient. They're not the only language that does that. By the way, Scottish Gaelic, Irish uh, Gaelic, which is generally just called Irish. There are a lot of languages that have symbolism in them and that have old ways of saying new things. All right, this is not not a secret. All right, back to chapter seven, the list of tribes. It's a very different list. It's not a standard list. So does that mean something big, something very important, something secret should be revealed? No. If you read scripture, there are 20 variant lists of the 12 tribes. Oh no, we found inconsistency and we found contradictions in scripture. No. It's just that some tribes ebb and flow. Some of them change their name because a new family becomes more important within that tribe. That's all it is. It just means that situations change. And so there are 20 different lists of the 12 tribes in scripture. Uh, and by the way, some of the lists don't even have 12. Some of the lists have as few as, as 10. Some have as many as 13. Why? Once again, people groups ebb and flow, they rise and fall, they gain strength, they lose strength, they're absorbed, they split. History is a moving target. You know, we often say, well, the past, well, that's settled. Well, actually, we're always learning more about the past too. So don't let any of this fill you with drama because that's not the point. God's not trying to get you hung up on this. 
That's, it's really a distraction. Um, John, by the way, the revelator here, leaves out Dan and Ephraim, and he adds in Joseph and Manasseh. A lot of books have been written about it, but it really doesn't have a deep meaning. What we need to remember is, here's the, here are the four corners of the planet. A wind, a very destructive thing, could be loosed upon the people, upon the sea or the nations, upon the trees, the foundations, the great mighty ones. But God has angels holding that back. It could be worse. Even 2020, it could be worse. God holds back. Remember, he even says, there's not a, a, not a temptation that comes at you, but there's not a way of escape. God just doesn't let the devil completely run you over. He's, he holds back and allows you to suffer. Yeah, uh, just like Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered, Scripture says. We, uh, we're going to go through some very hard times, but God is still watching. He has not deserted us by any stretch of the imagination. And the people who are going to go through all this persecution, who have already lived through Nero, They've already lived through awful emperors, are about to go through worse. God says, no, salvation is still assured. All through the corners of the earth, I'm still going to protect people. Verse 4, I'm going to mark them with a seal. Oh, my goodness, people have tried to figure out what the seal is. Um, you know, it would be like seeing Jesus walk in a room and he talks to us teaches us something important and then he leaves and we spend the next 20 years arguing about what kind of shoes he wore and why don't miss the big picture don't get it don't get so distracted what did he say what does it mean to us how do we apply it and move on here he's just saying i'm going to protect my people so what's with all the 12s and the 144,000? 12 is religion you have 12 from each of the 12 tribes, 12 times 12,000, 144,000. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are not Jews. Most Jehovah's Witnesses don't have any Jewish blood in them. They're not from any of these tribes. If you try to take this literally, it just blows their entire doctrine up. And again, not trying to make fun of or speak down to Jehovah's Witnesses. As far as I know, they're completely sincere and um, it's not like I haven't made mistakes in interpreting scripture. But we sharpen each other, get a little bit better as we go through. <clears throat> the numbers themselves are very encouraging. It means God's going to, you know, thousand, 12 times 12,000. He's going to take care of all of us completely. The cattle on a thousand hills, ha, a hundred times, you know, a thousand times. It's going to be 10 times, 10 times. And then the 12, all of those who have turned to God, old, you know, before and after Jesus, he's going to, he, you're safe. Try to like, remember when Paul wanted a, um, a, the thorn in the flesh removed from him, a persistent sin issue in his life. And yes, I know some people say it was an eye disease. No, it wasn't. He had a persistent issue. And the response from God was, I've got enough grace to cover you. God's got us covered. Wow comfort that's what we should be thinking about right now if you've been baptized into christ if you point your life toward christ you are saved not by your perfection but by his by his promise 
So shake that doubt off your shoulders. Stand up. Be proud. Not proud of you, but proud of your Savior because he's got you. Just like whenever I was learning to swim and, you know, you got a parent down in the, in the water in the river and they're saying, jump, I got you. You can be terrified, but they got you. Uh, the scripture, in fact, John, there's one to go read. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I know my sheep and God knows them and we call them by name. And then he says, John 10, 28, 29, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yes, me, Jesus. And because of that, yea, us. And then John looks out and he sees this number, which is too big to name. He can't even say 144,000. It's just massive. This great multitude from no one could count. And it's from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Did you, did you notice what wasn't mentioned? Race. You know why? Because race is a social construct. Biologically, we are one race, period. Red and yellow, black and white. And by the way, people don't like being called red and black and yellow and white. You know, we're, we're all variations, right? Of all the colors, but we're not any of those colors. We are all God's children created by God. We have just, um, we have developed different characteristics uh, on the surface, melanin, maybe an epicanthic fold or the like, but we're all human beings made in his image and we're all gonna be up there, all in the same heaven. If you don't like people of different colors, you're gonna hate heaven. If you don't like people that are different than you, you're gonna hate heaven because he wants to bring everybody in. And then verse nine, again, that everybody standing there wearing white robes, White robes. So these are the perfect and the clean ones. Yes, but maybe not the way you, you think so. They're not wearing white robes because of their moral perfection. They're wearing white robes because trusting and believing in Jesus makes them clean. Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had some serious issues. He really did. Now, I'm not knocking the guy. You know, he lived in a difficult time. He didn't have the Bible, didn't get to go to Bible class and learn the stories. But he made some huge moral errors. And yet, he believed God. Therefore, God credited to him righteousness. Same to us. And that's pretty cool. Salvation is the gift of God. And he's going to give it freely, even to those of us like me, who will never be morally perfect. I'll never be doctrinally perfect. Well, I, I would be if I could, but I can't. If I could, I wouldn't need Jesus. So somebody comes up to you and judges you unworthy of God's love. Don't worry about it. God gets to choose that, not them. One, one guy came up to me once and he goes, you have offended God. And I said, no, I've offended you. And I can tell the difference bet you can too. Then Revelation 7. I've read this at many, many funerals. Um, it's, it's a very touching passage, starting at verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? 
and John's just visiting the place. He goes, sir, you, you would know. And he said, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I want to stop there just for a second. When we think of them coming out of the great tribulation, well, there are those people that believe there's a pre-trib and post-trib. We're going to get to that, all right? This has nothing to do with that. Most people, when they look at this, will say, that means all that Roman persecution. Yeah, it does, but it doesn't just mean that. God knows it's hard down here. He knows it's brutal. I don't know what you're suffering with. You might have had an unwanted divorce, or you might have made terrible errors in your life of this, that, and the other with drugs or with relationships or addictions, or I don't know, but I will tell you this. Getting through this life is tough. You're gonna pick up some scars and none of us get out of here alive. God really admires us getting through it. And he looks upon your life as a great tribulation. He's not gonna ask you to say, oh, that was nothing. He doesn't do that. God cheers you on. He loves you. Then, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, the, the day will come when all struggles cease. The day will come when your robes will be white and your labors will be over. You know, we are pilgrims. We're strangers here on this earth. And nobody ever said about our journey through this earth to heaven that getting there was half the fun. No, it isn't. Travel was dangerous back then on every level, and it really was, until very recently. But now we can generally travel safe. But our travel through this world will still be difficult, and God knows it. And finally, one day we'll be home, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love the old song, No Tears in Heaven. I really do, and I don't want to be picky or pedantic about a verse here or there, but allow me to point out that there there are tears in heaven, but God, God, the creator, the judge, the ruler over all will stoop down in front of you and wipe the tears from your eyes. No shame, no tisk tisk. why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about. It's one of the weirdest phrase any parent ever used. God doesn't do it. He will show you love. He will care for you. And this chapter now ends, but it also ends something else. There's been an interlude between the first six seals and the opening of the seventh. Do you remember them? It's easy to forget. This has been an interlude. The seventh seal will be broken open in the first part of chapter eight. Its main task, by the way, is to usher in the next set of seven, the trumpets this time. But before we can face those trumpets, we need to remember the assurance, the promise, the pledge, the certainty of our salvation, because it's not about us. It's about him. We're not casual about sin, but we're realistic. This is who we are. We're also realistic. This is who he is. 
Salvation belongs to our God forever and ever. Amen. Stay here for more revelation and also for streamed worship service from our Safe Harbor Church. Please, if you need a church, become a member. We'd love to have you. Just make a comment, send us an email. Our website will be up soon and I'll be able to post that here as well. I'll try to put these notes up in the comment section the best I can. All right. God bless you. We'll talk to you very soon.